Chapter Fifty Eight of Uncle Silas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Silas by J. Sheridan Le Fenu. Chapter Fifty Eight. Lady Knollys's Carriage. Next morning, it was Sunday. I lay on my bed in my dressing-gown, dull, apathetic, with all my limbs sore, and, as I thought, rheumatic, and feeling so ill that I did not care to speak or lift my head. My recollection of what had passed in Uncle Silas's room was utterly confused, and it seemed to me as if my poor father had been there and taken a share, I could not remember how, in the conference. I was too exhausted and stupid to clear up this horrible muddle, and merely lay with my face toward the wall, motionless and silent, except for a great sigh every now and then. Good Mary Quince was in the room. There was some comfort in that, but I felt quite worn out, and had rather she did not speak to me, and indeed for a time I felt absolutely indifferent as to whether I lived or died. Cousin Monica this morning, at Pleasant Elverston, all unconscious of my sad plight, proposed to Lady Mary Carysbrook and Lord Ilbury, her guests, to drive over to church at Feltram, and then pay us a visit at Bartram Hoff, to which they readily agreed. Accordingly, at about two o'clock, this pleasant party of three arrived at Bartram. They walked having left the carriage to follow when the horses were fed, and Madame de la Rogere, who was in my uncle's room, when little giblets arrived to say that the party were in the parlour, whispered for a little with my uncle, who then said, Miss Maud Rithin has gone out to drive, but I shall be happy to see Lady Knollys here, if she will do me the favour to come upstairs and see me for a few moments, and you can mention that I am very far from well. Madame followed him out upon the lobby, and added, holding him by the collar, and whispering earnestly in his ear, "'Bling her ladyship up by the back stairs. Mind the back stairs.' And at the next moment Madame entered my room, with long tiptoe steps, and looking, Mary Quint said, as if she were going to be hanged. On entering she looked sharply round, and being satisfied of Mary Quince's presence, she turned the key in the door, and made some affectionate inquiries about me in a whisper, and then she stole to the window and peeped out, standing back some way, after which she came to my bedside, murmured some tender sentences, drew the curtain a little, and making some little fidgety adjustments about the room. Among the rest, she took the key from the lock, quietly, and put it in her pocket. This was so odd a procedure that honest Mary Quince rose stoutly from her chair, pointing to the lock, with her frank little blue eyes fixed on Madame, and whispered, "'Won't you put the key in the lock, please?' "'Oh, certainly, Mary Quince, but it is better it should be locked, for I think her uncle is coming to see her, and I am sure she would be very much frightened.' for he is very much displeased, don't you see?' 
and we can tell him she is not well enough or asleep and so he will go away again without any trouble i heard nothing of this which was conducted in close whispers and mary although she did not give madame credit for caring whether i was frightened or not and suspected her motives in everything acquiesced grudgingly fearing lest her alleged reason might possibly be the true one so madame hovered about the door uneasily and of what went on elsewhere during that period lady knollys afterwards gave me the following account we were very much disappointed but of course i was glad to see silas and your little hobgoblin butler led me upstairs to his room a different way i think from that i came before but i don't know the house of bartram well enough to speak positively i only know that i was conducted quite across his bedroom which i had not seen on my former visit and so into his sitting-room where i found him he seemed very glad to see me came forward smiling i dislike his smile always with both hands out and shook mine with more warmth than i ever remembered in his greeting before and said my dear dear monica how very good of you the very person i long to see i have been miserably ill the sad consequence of still more miserable anxiety sit down pray for a moment and he paid me some nice little french compliment in verse and where is maud i said i think maud is by this time about half-way to elverston said the old gentleman i persuaded her to take a drive and advised a call there which seemed to please her so i conjecture she obeyed how very provoking i cried my poor maud will be sadly disappointed but you will console her by a visit you have promised to come and i shall try to make you comfortable i shall be happier monica with this proof of our perfect reconciliation you won't deny me certainly not i am only too glad to come i said and i want to thank you silas for what said he for wishing to place maud in my care i am very much obliged to you i did not suggest it i must say monica with the least intention of obliging you said silas i thought he was going to break into one of his ungracious moods but i am obliged to you very much obliged to you silas and you shan't refuse my thanks i am happy at all events monica in having won your good will we learn at last that in the affections only are our capacities for happiness and how true it is st paul's preference of love the principle that abideth the affections dear monica are eternal and being so celestial divine and consequently happy deriving happiness and bestowing it i was always impatient of his or anybody else's metaphysics but i controlled myself and only said with my customary impudence well dear silas and when do you wish me to come the earlier the better said he lady marian ilbury will be leaving me on tuesday morning i can come to you in the afternoon if you think tuesday is a good day thank you dear monica i shall be i trust enlightened by that day as to my enemy's plans it is a humiliating confession monica but i am past feeling that 
it is quite possible that an execution may be sent into this house to-morrow and an end of all my schemes it is not likely however hardly possible before three weeks my attorney tells me i shall hear from him to-morrow morning and then i shall ask you to name a very early day if we are to have an unmolested fortnight certain you shall hear and name your own day then he asked me who had accompanied me and lamented ever so much his not being able to go down to receive them and he offered luncheon with a sort of ravenswood smile and a shrug and i declined telling him that we had but a few minutes and that my companions were walking in the grounds near the house i asked whether maud was likely to return soon certainly not before five o'clock he thought we should probably meet her on our way back to elverston but could not be certain as she might have changed her plans so then came no more remaining to be said a very affectionate parting i believe all about his legal dangers was strictly true how he could unless that horrid woman had deceived him with so serene a countenance tell me all those gross untruths about maud i can only admire in the meantime as i lay in my bed madame gliding hither and thither whispering sometimes listening at others i suddenly startled them both by saying whose carriage what carriage dear inquired quince whose ears were not so sharp as mine madame peeped from the window tis the physician dr yorks he is come to see your uncle my dear but i hear a female voice i said sitting up no my dear there is only the doctor said madame he is come to your uncle i tell you he is getting out of his carriage and she affected to watch the doctor's descent the carriage is driving away i cried yes it is driving away she echoed but i had sprung from my bed and was looking over her shoulder before she perceived me it is lady knollys i screamed seizing the window frame to force it up and vainly struggling to open it i cried i'm here cousin monica for god's sake cousin monica cousin monica you are mad miss go back screamed madame exerting her superior strength to force me back but i saw deliverance and escape gliding away from my reach and strung to unnatural force by desperation i pushed past her and beat the window wildly with my hand screaming save me save me here here monica here cousin cousin oh save me madame had seized my wrists and a wild struggle was going on a window pane was broken and i was shrieking to stop the carriage the frenchwoman looked black and haggard as a fury as if she could have murdered me nothing daunted frantic i screamed in my despair seeing the carriage drive swiftly away seeing cousin monica's bonnet as she sat chatting with her vis-a-vis -vis. oh 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 i shrieked in vain and prolonged agony as madame exerting her strength and matching her fury against my despair forced me back in spite of my wild struggles and pushed me sitting on the bed where she held me fast glaring in my face and chuckling and panting over me i think i felt something of the despair of a lost spirit i remember the face of poor mary quince its horror its wonder 
as she stood gaping into my face over Madame's shoulder, and crying, "'What is it, Miss Maud? What is it, dear?' and turning fiercely on Madame, and striving to force her grasp from my wrists. "'Are you hurting the child? Let her go! Let her go!' "'I will let her go! What old fool are you, Mary Queens? She is mad, I think. She has lost her head!' "'Oh, Mary, cry from the window! Stop the carriage!' I cried. Mary looked out, but there was, by this time, of course, nothing in sight. "'Why don't you stop the carriage?' sneered Madame. "'Call the coachman and the postilion. Where is the footman? Bah! Elle a la cerveau mal timbrée. "'Oh, Mary, Mary, is it gone? Is it gone? Is there nothing there?' cried I rushing to the window, and turning to Madame, after a vain straining of my eyes, my face against the glass. "'Oh, cruel, cruel, wicked woman! Why have you done this? What was it to you? Why do you persecute me? What good can you gain by my ruin?' "'Ruin! Pas bleu, ma chère, you talk too fast! Did not uh, you see it, Mary Quince? It was the doctor's carriage, and Mrs. York's, and that impudent fellow young yorks staring up to the window and mademoiselle she come in such shocking dishabille to show herself knocking at the window twould be very nice thing mary quince don't you think i was sitting now on the bedside crying in mere despair i did not care to dispute or to resist oh why had my rescue come so near only to prove that it could not reach me so I went on crying, with a clasping of my hands and turning up of my eyes, in incoherent prayer. I was not thinking of Madame, or of Mary Quince, or of any other person, only babbling my anguish and despair hopelessly in the ear of heaven. I did not think there was such fool. What enfant gante! My dear child, what can you mean by such strange language and conduct what for should you wish to display yourself in the window in such horrible dishabille to the people in the doctor's coach it was cousin knollis cousin knollis oh cousin knollis you're gone you're gone you're gone and if it was lady knollis's coach there was certainly a coachman and a footman and whoever has the coach there was a young gentleman in it? If it was Lady Knollys's carriage, it would have been worse than the doctor. It is no matter. It is all over. Oh, Cousin Monica, you poor Maud, where is she to turn? Is there no help? That evening Madame visited me again, in one of her sedate and moral moods. She found me dejected and passive, as she had left me. I think, Maud, there is news, but I am not certain. I raised my head and looked at her wistfully. I think there is a letter of bad news from the attorney in London. Oh, I said, in a tone which I am sure implied the absolute indifference of dejection. But, my dear Maud, if it be so, we shall go at once, you and me, to join Miss Millicent in France, la belle France, you will like so much. We shall be so gay. 
You cannot imagine there are such nice girls there. They all love me so much. You will be delight. How soon do we go? I asked. I do not know. But I was to bring in a case of eau de cologne that came this evening, and he laid down a letter to say, The blow has descended, madame. My niece must hold herself in readiness. I said, For what, monsieur? Twice, but he did not answer. I am sure it is un procès. They have ruined him. Eh bien, my dear, I suppose we shall leave this triste place immediately. I am so rejoiced. It appears to me un cimetière. Yes, I should like to leave it, I said, sitting up with a great sigh and sunken eyes. It seemed to me that I had quite lost all sense of resentment towards Madame. A debility of feeling had supervened. The fatigue, I suppose, and prostration of the passions. I will make excuse to go into his room again, said Madame, and I will endeavor to learn something more from him, and I will come back again to you in half an hour. She departed, but in half an hour did not return. I had a dull longing to leave Bartram Hoff. For me, since the departure of poor Milly, it had grown like the haunt of evil spirits, and to escape on any terms from it was a blessing unspeakable. Another half-hour passed, and another, and I grew insufferably feverish. I sent Mary Quince to the lobby to try and see if Madame, who, I feared, was probably toing and froing in and out of Uncle Silas's room. Mary returned to tell me that she had seen old Wyatt, who told her that she thought Madame had gone to her bed half an hour before. End of chapter 58